Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing in capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today I'm delighted to welcome back author and investor Robert Hagstrom to talk about his latest book, Warren Buffett, Inside the Ultimate Money Mind. If you've ever Googled Warren Buffett and books to read, you'll find Robert's first book on the list. The Warren Buffett Way spent five months on the New York Times bestseller list in 1994 and 95, and is routinely included in lists of the best books to read on the Oracle of Omaha. Robert is a CFA charter holder and a senior portfolio manager at Equity Compass, where he launched the Global Leaders Portfolio. He also serves as chairman of the Investment Management Committee for Stifle Asset Management. Our conversation is all about this concept of a money mind. What exactly is a money mind? What are the components? And importantly for investors, can they be learned? As you'll hear, we spend a good deal of time talking about temperament and why it's so important for investors. And of course, I couldn't let Robert go without asking him about the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting happening this weekend. I really enjoyed learning from Robert and listening to stories about the legendary investor and his longtime right-hand man, Charlie Munger. I hope you do too. Robert Hagstrom, welcome back to the show. Lauren, it's great to see you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. And I think since we last spoke, you um, had a new book published and I believe it's your 10th book. So congratulations. I'm actually going to hold this up because I I really love the cover art. And so those who are watching the video can actually see this great portrait um, on the front. Uh, And I'm curious, did you have any sort of say over what went on the the front of the book? I I did. I was actually, uh, I really had a very strong opinion that I wanted a different cover this time. Most all books about Warren Buffett have a photo. And I thought this book would be somewhat timeless. I mean, this is not about how to beat the stock market next week. This is how to think about the stock market in the rest of your life. And, and so I'd never seen a portrait done. So while it was great enough to locate an artist on the West Coast, a guy by the name Kevin West, and uh, he uh, drew this, uh, painted this, I should say. I fell in love with it. And uh, I've got the original, so it's great. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So you mentioned that the book is timeless. And actually, that's a good segue because I was going to ask you, there are lots of books that are written about uh, Buffett, about his partner, Charlie uh, um, Munger. Yeah. What makes this one different? Well, you know, this is humbling, Lauren, to admit, because, you know, when I wrote The Warren Buffett Way in 1994, so I've been at this for 25 years, and it was back in the 2017 annual meeting uh, about three years ago that Warren introduced the concept of a money mind. That was a term I'd never heard before, but how important he felt it was, how critically important it was for the successor of Berkshire Hathaway or anyone that was going to be successful, that they had to have a money mind. It was about temperament. And at that moment, Lauren, I thought, you know, for the last 25 years, all I've been thinking about is methods, mechanics of how to do the Warren Buffett way. I didn't spend enough time on temperament. So at that point, I felt maybe I only had half the story. So writing the book was filling in, it was kind of the bookend, filling in the rest of the story, which is what is a money mind? What is the temperament needed to be successful? 
Well, we're going to delve into that a bit more deeply because temperament sounds like an, a straightforward concept, but it, it really isn't. I was actually looking in the dictionary ahead of our conversation today, thinking, can I come up with a good definition? And I went through several different definitions and they're all a little bit different. So walk us through temperament and, and why that is so critical as an element of a money mind. Yeah, well, Plato, Plato actually talks about temperament in his cardinal, you know, in his virtues, right? His cardinal virtues and, 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 but he doesn't use temperament, he uses sound-mindedness. And, and so when you think about sound-mindedness, you, you kind of think about it is multi-layered, it's multifaceted, it, it, it is dynamical, and there's many, there's many parts to it. And in the book, we go through all of the building blocks of what it takes to uh, construct or actually achieve a money mine. And you're right, it's not just one thing, it's multiple things. So you've talked about the, the architecture of a money mind in yep. the book, and you just used the, the analogy of building blocks. Yep. So walk us through that. What is a money mind? Okay, well, I, you know, we were very fortunate to be able to rely on Roger Lowenstein's biography, which was written in 1995, uh, Buffett, The Making of American Capitalists. And he says right up front that he believed that Warren's uh, temperament, if you will, his, his ideology about how to think about markets, came from his father, Howard Buffett. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and we know Howard Buffett. He was a Republican congressman. We know much about him. But we really didn't get into his philosophical take. And we learned that Howard Buffett was deeply influenced by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and specifically the essays of self-reliance. And, and Roger Lowenstein speaks about self-reliance being a keynote of how Warren behaves and how he thinks. And so we spent a good deal of time going through the uh, the essays of self-reliance, and you can see how it just it, it connects with Warren perfectly. So self-reliance is the first building block. That which you begin with self-reliance makes everything else possible thereafter. So you begin with self-reliance. What's the next block? Well, then we went to Ben Graham, and Ben Graham actually talks a lot about temperament and the intelligent investor, mostly intelligent investor, but also in security analysis. And, and we think about Ben Graham, father of, of value investing, the dean of security analysis. But what we didn't uh, actually fully appreciate was his philosophy of stoicism. You know, he was he was a, he was a, a, a one, he, he read the classics, all the literary classics, the Greek classics, uh, the Roman classics, and all of that. And he was deeply influenced by Marcus Aurelius in meditation. Marcus Aurelius was a stoic. And when you think about his famous Mr. Market, remember. Ben Graham talked about Mr. Market. He can be in a good mood or in a bad mood. And, you know, you can't be influenced by Mr. Market going up and down uh, or you'll be in a lot of trouble. Well, the Stoics had the same kind of uh, opinion, which is you don't want to be whipsawed by, you know, good times, bad times, fear and greed. And so we spent a great deal of time on Stoicism and found out that it was the perfect, perfect mental, I guess, discipline, if you will, uh, that if you achieve a stoic attitude towards the market, you're somewhat indifferent about the volatility of the market. So therefore, it becomes a very important building block. So how many building blocks sort of go into this model? We've got self-reliance, we've got stoicism. Yeah. Um, how many others uh, yep. build the pillar? Well, we've got a couple more rationality. So, you know, Charlie Munger would talk about uh, that uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a temple to rationality. Warren Buffett talks about rational decision-making process. So we go back to the very beginning. Uh, we go back to the empiricist, Francis Bacon. We go back to uh, Descartes about uh, a priori models. And we can connect how, how basically rationalism is a combination of two forces. One, a priori methods. And you can think about Ben Graham. You have a mental 
idea of how things work, but also the empiricists who basically believe that you could only understand something at which point you were actively achieving it, or you're actually doing the work. So think about carpenters and astronomers and sailors. They would think about how to do something because they actually did it. And so then what became, uh, it was a synthesis of both the a priori and a posteriori uh, concepts of rationality that filled the gap of Kantianism, uh, Immanuel Kant. And then we further took it to William James, who had a, a viewpoint of radical empiricism, which was a form of rationality that combined the experiencer, which is Warren Buffett. He was the, he's the astronomer, the sailor, uh, the carpenter, if you will, uh, with the a priori models. And, and he talks about the experiencer plus the greater body of knowledge of what actually Berkshire Hathaway is all about. So we combine those together. Then the, the, the next part then goes to pragmatism. And, and uh, we, we spent a great deal of time in chapter two in the philosophy and investing, uh, talking about William James, who is the father of American pragmatism. And Charlie Munger talks about the importance of pragmatism. And we link pragmatism to Warren's ability to evolve from classic value one investing, phase one investing, the Ben Graham model, to phase two investing, which was a better business, think Coca-Cola, to phase three investing, which today is network economics and the role that Apple Computer plays in network economics. So pragmatism allowed Warren to basically evolve. One of the few investors that you can think about that actually has evolved from phase one, phase two to phase three investing, he couldn't have done that if he wasn't a pragmatist. So you've done a really good job of, I guess, distilling these elements. So we have self-reliance, stoicism, rationality, pragmatism. These have all worked very well for Warren, but for the average investor, I guess I wonder, how do you emulate that or how do you learn, how do you bundle that together so that you too have a money mind? Well, you know, I, once again, I think I, the mistake that I made in my career was just thinking about the math all the time, right? And, and so the harder, you know, I would, when we first started investing like Warren Buffett, I would ask clients, would you like to war, you know, invest like Warren Buffett? And they'd say, absolutely, you know, definitely. But as time goes by, I noticed that a few of them were really struggling. And, and, it, and it wasn't, I thought my job was to make it clear why this was a good investment. So I did more math. I sharpened my pencil. I tried to make it more plain as to why you should be in this investment, not realizing they didn't have the money mine. They didn't have the sense of self-reliance. They didn't have rationality and pragmatism. They didn't have a stoic attitude towards the market. And it, it really, as I wrote the book, it became critically, I guess wonderfully would be the better word, wonderfully uh, uh, revealing to me that this part, the temperament part, if you don't have the temperament part, you can have all the math in the world. But if you don't have the temperament part, uh, it's going to be hard for you to work well in the stock market. And, and I would say today, Lauren, more than ever, when I look at how the market has behaved over the last few years, uh, speed, magnitude, and volatility, the money mine is now ever more important than it's ever been for people to be successful in investing. So something I had scribbled down in my notes here, reading through the book uh, earlier this week, is you said, Buffett had said, investing is easier than you think, <laughs> but harder than it looks. Yeah. And you wrote, um, I thought I knew exactly what that meant. I was wrong. Yeah. It was the harder than it looks part that I got wrong. Yeah. And is that the temperament that you're talking about? Or is there something else that you had in mind there? Well, when I when, when I first, that, that actually the original quote comes from Ben Graham and, and, and Warren paraphrased it uh, wonderfully well. Uh, so the easier part is, you know, to be because we're business investors, we're business analysts as, as Berkshire's as, as followers of the Warren Buffett discipline. We think about stocks as businesses. 
And so we don't really are not too concerned about if the economy is growing or slowing down, if interest rates are going up or down or inflation's changing and all this stuff that seems to consume us uh, as investors. You really, you know, Warren doesn't really spend a lot of time He's thinking about buying this business and it's a business he's going to own, hopefully for many years, decades or longer. So the inputs about worrying about stock markets, the economy, interest rates don't play a role. So it's easier than that, right? Easier. And then the harder that it looks part, I thought, well, you know, it's no longer about just buying low PE stocks. You know, Warren, you know, set us straight with that in the 1980s when he said, you know, it has nothing to do with high PEs, low PEs, high price to book, low price to book. It's all about the cash flows. You know, John Burr Williams, dividend discount model. It's about the cash flows. Then he talks about, you know, the best investments are ones that have high returns on invested capital. I said, you know, that's the harder than it looks part. It's harder than just simply buying low PE stock or simply low in price book. That, that's what I thought was the harder. And, and I was wrong. It's really not that hard to do dividend discount models, right? In college, by the time you're a freshman, you probably got that figured out. You can do return on capital. You can figure those things out. The harder part is absolutely uh, acquiring the money model. That's the harder part. And Warren says, you know, there are not many people that have it because it is hard to acquire. Uh, but once you have it, and you have then the methods, the mechanics about how to think about a business valuation coupled with the temperament. When both of those are working in concert, boy, it's just a beautiful way in which to look at the stock market. It's a totally different viewpoint than the way we, uh, way most people think about stocks and stock investing. Do you have a favorite chapter in the book? Well, that's great. Yeah, you know, it's like which children do you like of your book? Which yes, that's <laughs> a hard, hard one to answer. <laughs> I, I actually, the last chapter I thought was 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 one that was um, one that I really kind of laid out. You know how I felt about investing and what Warren had taught. It's called the Sportsman, the Teacher, and the Artist. And 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 we talk about Warren as being a sportsman. You know, a lot of people uh, think about uh, athletics as. Uh, you know, the outcomes. I just have to win and win. And that's my only goal as a sports person. But if you really talk to people who are really passionate about sports, it's, it's much about process it's, as it is about winning every race. It's the love of the game. It's the act, right? It, and when you see Warren and you hear Warren and you think about Warren, he really, it's just the process of, of Berkshire Hathaway that's giving him the most joy. Yeah, he likes to beat the stock market. Yes, he likes to be successful. But it's been the process of, of building Berkshire Hathaway over. And the role of teaching. You know, we forget that, 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 that Ward has been a wonderful teacher for us. His dad was a teacher. He taught in Sunday school. His dad was a Republican congressman. He was a prolific writer, political writer, uh, was always teaching. His mentor, Ben Graham, for gosh sakes, was a teacher for, you know, decades and decades and, and wrote the very first book on security analysis. What a wonderful teacher. Warren himself, after he graduated from Columbia, came back. He took a Dale Carnegie course to uh, learn how to do public speaking. He taught classes at uh, the University of uh, uh, Nebraska in Omaha, and he wrote. And then he schooled, I guess, you know, and taught all of his partners. If you read the partnership papers during the Buffett Partnership, they're wonderful teaching tools. And of course, he's, he's taught the Berkshire faithful for the last, you know, 55, 65 years now uh, about how to think about investing. And then so the role of teaching is not only a virtuous role, but we discovered to the degree that one becomes a teacher, they actually begin to master the process even better. We, we know scientifically, academically speaking, teachers actually can master the material because they're teaching it over and over and over again. And then the artist. Um, when we think about Berkshire Hathaway, he, 
compares it to the Sistine Chapel and, and, and painting the Sistine Chapel. And, and so if Warren is the artist, and he's not comparing himself to Michelangelo, his humility is well known, but you know, he's, he, he basically painted Berkshire Hathaway for the last five plus decades. And so Warren's the artist, right? Uh, the pigment is the capital <laughs> that he's used over the year. And then he has painted this, you know, incredible, incredible painting called Berkshire Hathaway. And, and, and so when it all came together, it really became something that became larger than investing itself. Uh, something, something happened with Warren and, and Berkshire Hathaway that eclipsed just beating the stock market for five decades. Something grander has happened here. And, and that was a really revealing chapter. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your pivots to the annual uh, meeting yeah. that takes place every year, the yeah. first Saturday in May. Uh, some people call it the, the Woodstock for Capitalists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this year is a little bit different. It's yeah. taking place in Los Angeles, yep. California. Um, and I was reading that it's been held in Omaha since 1970. So this is quite a, yeah. quite a shift for them this year. Yeah. Um, and before we go on, I just have to do a, a shout out for nonagenarians. I mean, I can't believe it, but people might not know that Warren Buffett is 90 yeah. and Charlie Munger is 97. Unbelievable. I mean, it's quite phenomenal. Yeah. So I'm curious, how many of these uh, meetings have you been to over the years? Oh, I guess, you know, started going in 1995, right after the book. And I don't think I've missed more than two or three for family reasons. Um, uh, so I go to them every year. And, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, you know, you go to church service, you know, every every holiday season just to get the religion one more time, right? Um, and, and I wouldn't miss it. And, and much of it is the camaraderie. We talk about the university of Berkshire, the collegiate uh, gathering of everyone that, that, that gets there. And I wouldn't miss it. And, it, and and it's disappointing that last year we had to do it virtual from Omaha and this year, which was the right call. Uh, I'm glad he's doing it in Los Angeles. And he did it specifically for Charlie. Uh, you know, Charlie was not in Omaha last year. Charlie is 97 years old, and I'm telling you, he is sharp as a tack. Anybody that would go on YouTube and see the Daily Journal annual meeting that he puts on every year, and I think he was an hour and a half, two hours on that. I mean, sharp as a crackerjack, but obviously it'll be much easier uh, for Charlie to do it from Los Angeles, where he lives, than to fly out from Omaha. So it, it's a treat to have Charlie at this year's uh, virtual meeting. Uh, Ajit Chan will be there, who heads up insurance. Greg Abel, who heads up the non-insurance businesses. Uh, I think Becky Quick will be there asking questions. So it's going to be as, as much fun as we can possibly make it. Uh, but I'm really, you know, quite uh, fingers crossed that we'll all be gathering in Omaha this time next year. Let's hope so. I believe uh, something like more than 30,000 people descend yeah. on, on Omaha, yeah. which is kind of mind-boggling. Actually, one number I said said almost 40,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this year, what will you be listening out for? Well, you know, you, it, it's always the subtle things that I always catch. You know, the, the, the headlines that make uh, the newspapers and the financial news, those are, those are the obvious. I'm looking for the subtle takes, uh, you know, the, the things that, that may not think, you know, how, how maybe what is a long-term thought about capital allocation, how you think about it. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway just gushes so much cash every single day, week, month, year. And the biggest hurdle that he's got is what to do with the money. And, and so you begin to think about, Okay, you know, you've got this bucket full of paint that's money. <laughs> where are you going to paint it? You know, where are you going to take that brush and where are you going to allocate the capital? Because knowing that, and, and we and we refer to it as as watching a painting, watch someone painting. If, if you do art appreciation, um, really to fully understand a, a piece of artwork, really you have to sit down very comfortably, take your time, 
and try to think about how this painting is, has, has evolved and, and been painted over time. And Warren will walk you through that. He'll, he'll tell you how he's painting, painting the painting. And, and knowing that, you'll get a pretty good idea of what Berkshire Hathaway will look like in the years to come. So you mentioned sort of the financial news headlines, and uh, there were some headlines fairly recently with the uh, annual shareholder letter, which is a very closely followed sort yeah. of Bible yeah. from Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and it was very clear that, that Warren is no fan uh, of the bond market. In yeah. fact, the New York Times called it a, a dour assessment yeah. of debt investments and that Buffett had written debt securities face a bleak future. Do you agree? One thousand <laughs> percent. And, uh, you know, here, here the math is just so obvious. Uh, you know, it's just the 30 year plus bond market, bull market is now over. Uh, and the only way that it continue would be for, you know, interest rates to go negative, which I think would be a low likelihood. We've already seen that that's not a very effective monetary policy tool in Japan and Europe. So the likelihood of, of interest rates going negative from here is low. Um, we've already seen uh, interest rates, uh, you know, go from 50 basis points in August last year to, you know, 1.75. This is the worst bond market uh, I've seen since 1994, negative rate of returns in bonds, long duration bonds. And this is, this is problematic because you're talking about two generations of investors, maybe three, that have never experienced a negative rate of return in their bond portfolio. And all of a sudden there's a, a, a negative return. And many people, particularly older investors, may have 40, 50, 60% of their net worth in bonds. And Warren is telling you, you've got to do something different. Uh, not only does the current coupon have a negative real rate of return after inflation, but you're going to have capital loss. And so he was very plain spoken. I mean, the one thing you can say about Warren is when he's most plain spoken, pay attention because he's telling you exactly what you ought to be thinking. So, yes, he's 100 percent correct. Bonds still play a role, Warren. They play a, an important role, a supportive role, a stability in the portfolio, provide modest income, stability, but they can't play the dominant role. You know, the years in which you had 50, 60 percent of your portfolio in bonds, when bonds were six and seven percent or five percent, that made it, that was OK. Today, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So one of the things that he didn't uh, address in his letter was who would succeed him yeah. as chief executive. And that's the perennial question. Yeah. Do you think that'll come up again this year? Oh, it always does. I mean, it's a favorite question. You know, he's he, you've got two people right in front of him, Ajit Jan and Greg Abel. Ajit, you know, obviously brilliant uh, in the insurance market, reinsurance market. So he has all the insurance uh, units reporting to him. Greg, a little younger, has the most employees <laughs> uh, with the railroad business and Berkshire Hathaway in the retail. So you've got two great, you know, potential CEOs. And obviously Todd Combs and Ted Wexler are right there managing money. They're probably managing, you know, close to 10 to 20 billion per person right now. Uh, they could step in. And then, of course, his son, Howard, uh, will be tapped to be the executive, non-executive chairman of Berkshire Hathaway on the day in which um, Warren or Charlie is not on stage answering questions. So I, I think the whole issue of of uh, who's going to succeed Warren and, and Charlie should be put to put to rest. We've got a pretty good idea who the lineup is. Mm -hmm. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on the amazing partnership between um, yeah. you know, Warren and Charlie. It's, it's yeah. so unique. It's something like the, the Batman and Robin. They're like two of the partners <laughs> that you just can't imagine the one without the other. Yeah. What is it that makes them so complementary? Well, you know, um, you know they're, they're connected by the way in which they see the world in the same way. Rationality is uppermost in their minds. They, they rationally think about investing identically. You know, there's no difference in how they think about it. 
they, they just seem to be two sides of the same coin and everything. Charlie, a little gruffer, a little more to the point. Uh, Warren, a little more diplomatic, but it's kind of the Bartle. I don't know. I used to, in the Warren Bucket way, I said Bartles and James. That was an old wine commercial we used to look at. But they're brilliant together. Um, they have been at each other's side, when you think about it, uh, obviously much longer than the time he had with his dad, much longer than the time that he had with Ben Graham. Uh, they have been partners longer than anybody that I can think of have been partners in the investing business, finance business, or corporate world. Um, it's just been the perfect match. And they built this incredible, incredible business that I think can live on uh, for decades after uh, they've moved on. And, the, and then we write about it in the book. And the answer is the, the glue that holds Berkshire Hathaway together is not so much creativity or technology or inventing a new drug. It's the rational allocation of capital. It is compound interest, which was invented you know, 330 years ago. If somebody comes in who has a money mind, who understands rational allocation, who's pragmatic, takes the cash flow of Berkshire Hathaway, reallocates it in investment opportunities and continues to play that role, there's no reason why Berkshire Hathaway won't be a viable, dynamic corporation decades and decades. So one of the things I loved about the book, and it really is highly readable, and we'll make sure to link in the show notes to where um, you know folks can find the book, is that it's filled with what I call cocktail nuggets. So years ago, I had a, an editor who just loved those little nuggets that you're like, oh, did you know this? Or did you know that? And you're like, oh, that's a great cocktail nugget. And so one of the cocktail nuggets you share is like very early on in the book is about uh, Warren at age 11 picking up this yep. book, I think, in the library yep. uh, by a certain F.C. Miniker. Yeah. Uh, it was titled 1,000 Ways to Make $1,000, and it was published in 1936. So tell the audience a little bit about the book, what makes it yep. unusual. Well, it, it, <laughs> um, yeah, it was, you know, 11 years old, right? So you got to remember, you know, being an 11-year-old in Omaha, you know, there was no internet. <laughs> there's, there's no cable television. There's no smartphones. You know, there's no television, right? You had radio programs. If you were lucky, an occasional Saturday movie, right? But your time was spent reading. And, and so he camped out in libraries and came across this shiny book one day, silver cover, had coins on it, written by F.C. Miniker. And it, it talks about all the different businesses that you could start to make money. And, and it's a thousand ways to make a thousand dollars. But the nugget that we found out about it is that F.C. Miniker, which we thought was a man, was a male, right? Was actually Francis Mary. <laughs> Francis Mary Cowan Meneker was a woman and she purposely hid her initials at the time when women were not thought to be business people and writing about business stories. And so we, and when I mentioned that to Warren, he had no idea either. He goes, Robert, I didn't even know that. I said, he goes, that's just brilliant that uh, it would be a woman who would be teaching us about business in the 1930s. So that was a, that was a little bit of a jewel to uncover. I love it. And there's also a great story in there about a penny scale. Yeah. Um, tell us about the, the penny scale story really yeah. briefly. Well, in the in the book, 1,000 Ways to Make Money, there's a story about a guy that uh, uh, made $1,000 by buying penny weighing machines. So in the old days, you go in a drugstore, retail store, five and dime, and there would be a, a weighing scale. You would stand on the, the scale and for a penny, drop a penny, and it would tell you how much you weigh. And so the story was this gentleman uh, was sitting there watching it and while he was in line waiting to be uh, uh, checked out, he noticed, you know, probably a dozen people were dropping in a penny every time he goes by. And he happened to ask the owner, he said, you know, what's the story here? And he says, well, listen, I lease these machines and I get 25% of the money and the guy that owns the machine 
gets 75% of the money. And he thought to himself, well, that sounds like a pretty good business. So he took his savings. It was like, I don't know, 190 bucks. And I think machines were 60, 70 bucks a piece, whatever. And he bought three machines and put them around town and soon was making enough money that he bought another 70 machines throughout town and made his entire life on penny weighing machines. And Warren pointed out that that's exactly how he thought about Berkshire Hathaway. It's a compounding machine. It's a penny weighing machine that people put money in the penny. They put pennies in the, the machine. They put money into Berkshire Hathaway. He takes the profits out, buys more penny weighing machines that make more pennies and keeps doing it. And the whole history of Berkshire Hathaway is analogous to the penny weighing machine story. And, and he talks about it in the annual reports. It's the compounding metaphor of how to think about Berkshire Hathaway. I just love that story. Yeah. So since you've been a guest before, I'm not going to ask you the same usual questions ah. that I ask every guest because you know them already. Yeah. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different. And I would love for you to share uh, what I'll call a cocktail nugget. Okay. Uh, one about Warren and one about Charlie. All right. Well, I'll tell my favorite Charlie story. So, um, you know, Charlie is a polymath. Brilliant. Um, you know, he gave us the mental models, multidiscipline mental models uh, about how to think about the world from different disciplines. He gave us the psychology of misjudgments, how to think about the study of failure. Um, but many people don't know that, in my opinion, he was the very first behavioral finance person. All right. So if you go back and look at when uh, Kahneman and Tversky uh, published Prospect Theory, that was 1979. So that's kind of the launch of what was considered modern day behavioral finance. When Charlie um, uh, had graduated from, uh, he didn't graduate from college. He went to University of Michigan and Caltech, then had to go into World War II, came out and immediately got accepted to Harvard Law School. Upon graduation in 1949, he began the study of decision-making. And by the time he was managing his own partnership in 1962, he was studying uh, how bad decisions are made and in investing. And their, to their totality of that is in Charlie's Almanac, uh, a great book uh, that goes through the 25 psychology misjudgments about investing. So my little tidbit is if you want to know who the father of behavioral finance is, with all due respect to Kahneman and Tversky and Nobel Prizes and everything else, the very first behavioral finance investor was Charlie Munger. And then with Warren, there's a, a cute story in, in one of the biographies um, that he was having lunch one day. He had a partner, a guy named Falk, F-A-L-K, who was his partner. And I don't think, you know, he's probably 11, 12 years old and he was having lunch and Mrs. Falk had given him some chicken noodle soup and he was sitting at the lunch table and talking about investing and businesses. And as they were sitting around the table, Warren said, if I'm not a millionaire by the age of 30, I'm going to jump off the tallest building in Omaha. Well, Mrs. Falk spit out her soup and she got also upset because she thought that Warren was going to do something tragic with his life if he didn't become a millionaire. Well, at age 30 and four months, at the end of, uh, uh, of that year of his investment partnership with the Buffett Partnership, his payout from performance for managing the Buffett Partnership reached $1 million. So he missed it by four months. Wow. But, he, but, he became, <laughs> but he became a millionaire at age 30 and four months. I always thought that was a cute story. That is a great story. Well, Robert, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, and I so appreciate your time uh, today. Thank you again for joining us. You're great to have me. Wish you the best of luck. Hope to see you soon. You've been listening to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to the show. That way, you never miss an episode.
And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. And a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.